Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Shlach Lecha this morning. It gets referred to two ways, Shlach, just Shlach, and Shlach Lecha. Um, as always, the name of the Parsha comes from the first, you know, meaningful words at the beginning of the Parsha. And Shlach Lecha is about sending, right? When we have Shlach, it means to send. So Shlach Lecha, send for yourselves, uh, and we're going to have Meraglim, we're going to have scouts being sent. So this is the famous story of the 12 scouts. We're in the first triennial portion of every parsha, so we are actually at the beginning of the story. And uh, so let's let's begin. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Send men to scout the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelite people. Send one man from each of their ancestral tribes, each one a chieftain among them." So Moses, by the Lord's command, sent them out from the wilderness of Paran. All the men being leaders of the Israelites, and these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zachor. From the tribe of Simeon, Safat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulon, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Yosef, namely the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Don, Amiel, son of Gamalek. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Vophi. From the tribe of God, Geuel, son of Machi. Those were the names of the men whom Moses sent to scout the land. But Moses changed the name of Hosea, son of Nun, to Joshua. Or? Yes. Oh, okay, no. Let's stop. Um, so interesting to see which of those names that we just read survived as popular names and which did not. Rafua did not stay a very popular uh, name, right? Um, what's happening? Where are we? What's going on with these people? What's happening? Why is all this happening right now? What's the context? Well, we're in the desert. We're in the waiting desert. Waiting to cross over into the promised waiting land. Waiting to cross over into the promised land. And the question is, what's going to be there? Because we're not just crossing over. We're moving there. We're, we're moving there. But guess what? People already live there. Right. So, so if you're... <laughs> we're invading. Right? They're getting ready to invade. All right. So God says to Moshe... <clears throat> God says to Moshe, send for yourselves scouts to the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelite people, one from each of the ancestral tribes, each one a chief. Why? Why is God sending, why is God saying to Moshe to send scouts? God knows what Canaan looks like. God doesn't need information. People. So how is God testing the Israelites here, Reuben? Well, uh, to, to see if they're uh, up for invading. <laughs> to see if they're up for invading. Okay. Well, they've got strategy. And to see if the scouts they send are loyal and worthy that they come down with the information. So it's not just scouts they're sending, they're sending chieftains. So they're sending important people. So maybe to test the leadership, to say, is the leadership ready to go and take on some kind of a mission and come back with accurate information? And Elaine says, strategy, right? Presumably God can tell them the strategy. But, but the chiefs, you've got to get... Uh, the rest of the people to want to invade. I mean, it's one thing to wander around someplace for 40 years, uh, or in my case, you know, an evening. Uh, <laughs> it's another thing to make a plan to go and to actually take something and to potentially die in the process. And so uh, the chiefs are... Uh, ostensibly the leaders who were herding the cats who are the Israelites to um, 
to, to go in. So you need people to know how to herd cats. So it's a, presumably they already know how to herd cats, but what I heard you say earlier is that they, they, these chieftains, these leaders maybe need to have bought in differently so that they can come back and excite the people. That, that's exactly right? That if they go have a firsthand experience of this land flowing with milk and honey, then they can come back and say to their people, yo, this is awesome, and fire them up and get them ready to do it, risk their lives. But, but also if they're difficult, I mean, part of the job of leadership is to look at the pros and cons and sell, sell the uh, the people that you're leading on the pros. To weigh honestly the pros and cons and sell your people on the pros uh, if the plan's going forward, right? And we're not discussing whether or not the plan's going forward, right? This is this is a done deal. So if you're sending scouts and it's a done deal that you're invading, then it's to sell them on h- how this can work. Robert? Well, it strikes me that <clears throat> something's really wrong here because... Because you've been reading Torah, no, so no, you no. know something's really this, wrong this here. This is a military campaign that's going to have to get waged, and uh, God or Moses, whoever's thinking about it, it's normal to send scouts. You don't send a bunch of old fogies, the, 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 the chiefs. You send, first of all, you probably don't send 12 people, you send two or three. Young, strong, camouflaged, knowledgeable, done it before people. To, to do the job of scouting so that you can have a successful military campaign. So some of our so some of our commentators say exactly what you're saying. And they're like, so obviously this is not a military scouting expedition. This is not reconnaissance to develop strategy. Because if it were, you would not send twelve chieftains. You would send your SEALs. Your Navy SEALs, your Marines, you send in like your special ops forces, whatever it's called, and um, people who are expert at it. And who would they have reported to when they got back if it were a military mission? To Moses, to the general. You would have come back to the general. They come back to the entire, which we're going to see, the entire people. So you're absolutely right. This is not a military expedition. It seems to be about getting the leadership to test the leaders, to get them to go and to come back ready to sell the people on the pros of the campaign. To me, this looks like building consensus. Building consensus, that we got to get everybody on board. And that process is very important. And that process is critical, as we're going to see, is critical to the success of the mission. Mission being the mission writ large, which is conquering the land. Right, it, you need everybody on board, and absolutely consensus is critical. Is it just assumed there's going to be war here? Yes. Because there's been no predicate to this. It just get ready for the campaign. Well, the, the predicate has been we counted how many fighting men we have. Yeah, we yeah, counted right. how, so it's. They don't really know what they're going to see, but they know it's going to be hostile. Yeah. Right. Yes. Correct. I just walk in and say I'd like to buy your land. Right. They know that they're going to have to fight for it. Yes. I've always looked at this following what you were saying as testing the people as to whether these former slaves were able to take on, I'm taking this metaphorically, were ready to take on the responsibility of creating a decent society. So that's, I mean, that's, so, we're, so we're now at the leadership being sent. We're going to see what happens. Yeah, the question, I mean, as the, as the story unfolds, the issue really is do the people have the inner strength not so much the physical strength, but the spiritual strength right. to escape which, slavery. Which is it yet, right? We're, we're still at, we're sending leaders. The leaders are supposed to come back, and then you know they could give a report, and then we should see what happens with the people, right? Do, do they have the will to follow their leaders? All right, so, right, that's what we would imagine is going to happen. All right, so, but let's see what actually happens, because we're dealing with Jews here. <laughs> when Moses... Uh, sorry. I think I started Torah study maybe this is my second year. Good, we love that. But we did a different portion last time. And it seemed to me that I don't remember the fact that we sent priests and chieftains to be, you know, to go ahead and see how the land was. But um, everybody was fetching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That, you know, that's the thing I remember that everybody does. That these were the people that they sent in the first 
in the first triennial. So yeah, we we read a later. We started later in the story. Bless you. We started. Bless you at the at the consequences, right? At at the end, and went further. So um, we're, now we're starting at the very beginning. So this is why you have come to Torah study more than one year, right? So that you can get the whole story, right? And job security, exactly right. I keep saying. All right, seventeen. Okay, when Moses sent them to scout the land of Canaan, he said to them. Go up there into the Negev and on into the hill country and see what kind of country it is. Are the people who dwell in it strong or weak? Few or many? Is the country in which they dwell good or bad? Are the towns they live in open or fortified? Is the soil rich or poor? Is it wooded or not? And take pains to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now it happened to be the season of the first ripe grapes. They went up and scouted the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehov at uh, they went into, they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron where lived Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai the Anakites. Now Hebron was founded seven years before Zoan of Egypt. They reached the Wadi Eshkol and there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. It had to be borne on a carrying frame by two of them and some pomegranates and figs. That place was named the Wadi Eshkol because of the cluster that the Israelites cut down there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting the land, and they went straight to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran, and they made their report to them and to the whole community as they showed them the fruit of the land. This is what they told him. We came to the land you sent us to. It does indeed flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who inhabit the country are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the Anakites there. Amalekites dwell in the Negev region. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites inhabit the hill country. And Canaanites swell by the sea along the Jordan. Okay, so we're going to stop here. Because we're going to take it piece by piece, chunk by chunk. Right? All right. So they, the scouts go in... They, they're going to try to answer the questions that Moshe has asked them, right? Presumably, to our point about why the leaders are being sent, is the soil rich or poor? Well, obviously, they're supposed to come back with a report that the soil is rich, right? And it's fertile. And bring us some, you know, appetizers. Bring us some samples. Bring it, right? So, um, so they go and they do that. They bring back the fruit of the land. It's grape season. The grapes are so huge they have to carry it on poles. You've seen this on your Kedem wine label. Right, they're carrying the that that's from this story, right? That they're that the so fertile, the grapes are so amazing that they have to carry it on poles, and they they see who lives there, obviously, right? Uh, the Anakites, we we know so some of these folks that we are told about, um, and they go to the Wadi Eshkol at the end of forty days. So they've been gone over a month. When they come back. They went straight to Moshe and Aharon and the whole Israelite community. So everybody's been waiting for them to come back. They report to everybody, which means this is not a military conversation, right? Because you don't bring just back fruit when you're talking about, right, how to conquer or something and you're talking about reconnaissance. So this is obviously a campaign to sell the people on the campaign. So they come back and they they make their report. So what what is it that they say? They went straight to the to Moses and the and Aaron and the Israelite community at Kadesh, and they made their report to the and it says again to the whole community. It's very clear that they're talking to Kol Ha'edah, everybody. This is what they told him. This is him. To so to Moshe in front of the entire community. We came to the land you sent us to. It does indeed flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit, right? And so they're putting out this vast array, right, of, of amazing fruit. However, the people who inhabit the country are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the Anakites there. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Amalekites dwell in the Negev region. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites inhabit the hill country, and Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So the scouts come back with a fairly balanced report. They, they tell the truth about the land being uh, fruitful and flowing with 
milk and honey. Then comes this word, verse 28, the first word of verse 28. <laughs> In Hebrew? Ephes. What does Ephes mean, Rita? Zero. Zero. Right? So you don't get that when you read the word however. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Ephes. Yeah. Zero. So you're zeroing out everything you just said. Oh right? So it's so even in English, we don't we try we're we're schooled now not to say but. Right. I love that sweater, but right the, you then now I'm going to negate. Right, right. I negate by saying right. but everything I just said. You're a fabulous rabbi, but <laughs> right? So <laughs> right? You, <laughs> you you negate everything that you just said when you say but. So we're taught to say you're a fabulous rabbi and right? Um but, but would have been a more accurate translation. So yes, uh, but all, all I'm lifting up, but uh, all I'm lifting up is we know that the minute you say but or however, you're negating everything that you just said. So that's already something we know. Now add the fact that in Hebrew this word is zero. Right. It just in, it, it intensifies how much you're negating everything you just said. This is where our commentators go. That this is part of the problem with the report of the scouts. They're leaders. It's their job to come back and sell the people on this campaign. And they, they, they say what's true about the land. Then they say FS. FS, what's going to follow that huge but? The people who inhabit the country are powerful. And, and actually... Um, right there they're very their cities are huge and the gum right now they're going to add to it gum so now they're going to intensify it the gum and also we saw the Anakites there mm-hmm. now, now, I'm assuming they didn't have cell phones back then so they, they no, did not we don't have a view of their emotional state uh, when they're giving this report. So mm-hmm. is, is what you're saying effectively that look at all this stuff, but if we were to see something, um, and it, it's more than, but on the other hand, but oh my God. Yes, I think there's like OMG, mm-hmm. especially because otherwise, why say we saw the Anakites there? Like what? Right, it seems that there's some kind of and they wouldn't like have zero. They would have said the rest is just zero because here's the problem. It seems that they're sensing a big problem. So this is where the commentators go. Is it because otherwise it's why is everybody so upset after this, right? It must right. It must mean there's an OMG in there right that is tele being telegraphed about, you know, the cities being so huge and the anarchites. Could it be that the another way of looking at the zero is but because of what's about to follow, we have zero chance. Of Correct. Yeah. Yes, I think that's exactly what's being telegraphed. You know, what whatever their words are, it's clear. How do we know? Read Bert, verse thirty. Why do we believe there's an OMG in there somewhere? Caleb hushed the people before Moses and said, "Let us by all means go up, and we shall gain possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it." But the men who had gone up with him said, We cannot attack that people, for it's stronger than we. Thus they spread calumnies among the Israelites about the land they had scouted, saying, The country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people that we saw in it are men of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The Anakites are part of the Nephilim. And we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. And so we must and so we must have looked to them. Okay. So verse thirty. Kalev. Vayahas Kalev. I am not familiar with this verb at all. Vayahas Kalev etaam. So I'm wondering if it's onomatopoeia. Yeah, Vayahas. Like shh. Vayahas Kalev etaam. Kalev shushes the people. What's interesting is that we are not told that the people say anything. <laughs> We're not told that anything happens here, right? So one of my teachers, um, Rabbi Rachel Goldenberg, points this out and says, 
Caleb already is, as a leader, taking on the anxiety he feels after the report. He hears the report. He gets anxious. He can tell the people are getting anxious. And he's already shushing them before they've even said anything. Right? That Caleb is also failing in leadership here. That he's, he's shushing them. Like out of his own anxiety and you know her teaching about you know, us and of course she's teaching from a mindfulness perspective and she says you know often we need to shush ourselves first we need to hush ourselves if we're really going to respond to the anxiety going on out there without making it worse right is to be ready to listen with empathy and compassion and, and take care of our own anxiety so we're a non-anxious presence for what's happening and that way we can respond rather than react and then start this whole thing that makes it worse so so Caleb hushes the people and says let us by all means go up and we shall gain possession of it for we shall surely overcome it right so he's like trying to rally everybody and here's how we know that the scouts their report wasn't just an even handed report it's because the first thing they say is we absolutely cannot attack that people it is stronger than we and they spread calumnies among the Israelites about the land they had scouted the rabbis here find this to be one of the worst things that the scouts do which is fascinating to me um, is it they talk lush and hara about the land they, they speak gossip the evil tongue they, remember we talked about lush and hara meaning bad speech and gossip so that the, the reason God gets so angry is because they he spoke ill of the land of Israel. Like that's what God's so angry about. Like how dare you spread calumnies about this fantastic, amazing place that right? You know that I've been promising generations of your people, and you're gonna trash it? Are you kidding me? So it's Israel's reputation that God is like incensed that they would insult Israel's reputation. It's like they're in a catch twenty-two because they were charged with going in. Observing this, that, and the other thing, and bring, bring back a report. So we're and bringing back the report as they view it. So we're going to have to talk about that. The country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people we saw are men of great size, right? Like giants, actually. And the Anakites are part of the Nephilim. Those are giants. Think, think David and Goliath. Goliath was one of those guys. So we're talking like abnormally huge. The Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors. <laughs> I played basketball for Yeshiva High School in Atlanta, and I'll just tell you, it's Tallulah Falls. <laughs> the girls from Tallulah Falls. They are huge. So uh, um, I played, we were doing a 1 2 2 offense. They had a 2 1 2 defense. I was the point guard because I was the tallest on the team. I was, uh, you know, playing the one of the 1 2 2. And these one girls, they looked over my head. <laughs> one said to the other, I'll get the ball, you get her. <laughs> so think about the terror that strikes in your heart. That is how they're talking, right, to the Israelite people. That's exactly right. So the so they're all huge, and we saw the Nephilim there, and the Anakites are part of the Nephilim, and we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves, and so we must have looked to them. Now tell me, Linda, why do the rabbis feel like they have grounds? The tradition has grounds to, and Moshe and God and everyone else has grounds to take issue with the scouts. Now, their report, you could say, till now was as they saw it. What's the problem now with the leaders? These are leaders coming back. The problem is that the leaders are supposed to rev up the enthusiasm for the rest of the people who want to go in and take over. So first of all, they don't do that. They don't have confidence in themselves. And who else do they not have confidence in? And God. God has said, I will give you this land. You're going to take it. It's all going to be great. And this, this is, we absolutely cannot attack those people is saying, we don't believe God is going to do this after all that they have seen. That's more of the point, I think. So that's, so that's part of it. The other thing is just look at what they say. We, the country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people we saw in it are men of great size. 
Well, tell me the problem there. How can it be a place that devours all of its settlers if they're giants? Yeah. Their cities are huge. Their people are huge. It's flowing with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. Look how big it is. It devours its settlers. No, but doesn't that mean that it just incorporates into their, their uh, whatever system they have, like their religion and their they, they acculturate them to their, their, their way of party. Okay, so, but... Why is that? Why is that a bad thing? Why is that scary? They're going to conquer. They're going to kill them. They're going to wipe them out. Is is that they're not going to kill them? No, that they're going to lose their identity. That they're going to they devour them. Get killed. All right, but but remember, there's two options here. We attack with God on our side. We beat them. We take the land. What's the other option? We're afraid we're not going to do that. We're afraid we're going to get devoured by them. That's the same problem. You're, then you're saying God is not strong enough to do this. So either way, even if they think it's an accurate statement that it devour, like that everyone gets incorporated, I think it's more, though, that they are tailing an internally inconsistent argument. They are panicking. So on the one hand, you know when you catch your kid, right? And like all of a sudden the story contradicts itself right because they're think, trying to think really fast and they're kind of panicking and not, I mean I don't know about this firsthand, but um, so and like you know because there's something inconsistent right that gets said you're like you didn't think that through very clearly and it's kind of like that it's like you the land devours its inhabitants and they're huge right and you're, so it's like everything you can be terrified of that they're projecting they project, right? Both that it devours its settlers. Well, that can't be true if it's flowing in milk and honey and they're all huge. Um, but they're so huge, they're going to kill us and we can't attack them. They have big cities. Yeah. If, it, if the land devours all of its inhabitants, right? So it, it makes... So the one commentator that I love um, says, Rabbi Mayer Schweiger says, don't focus on, don't read devouring. That's where we tend to focus. It eats. It literally eats. It, the land eats. Yoshveha. And so Mayor Schweiger says, don't focus on eats. Focus on Yoshveha. It's not that everyone gets eaten. Who gets eaten? Yoshveha, the ones who sit around. The ones who do nothing. Right? The ones who, like Yoshev, to sit. Literally, it's to dwell, but it's also to sit. And so the ones who sit, right, those are the ones who get devoured because there's a lot going on. And like, you know, you just sit around and that's who gets devoured. We have to be ready to fight and work and do and make. And is, there, is there a concern that, uh, from a metaphorical sense that uh, uh, we see this and we'll get assimilated? In other words, we'll be slaves again. You know, we're, 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 uh, all of these sorts of things, we're not each and every one of us is going to get devoured as such. Well, again, that, that, then that what they're saying there is they don't believe that God can conquer the land, help them conquer it in such a way that that's not a threat. So that's, you know, that's part of that report of they're, they're terrified that, that they don't have trust that God can do it, if that's what they're arguing. Maybe it's historically it's survival of the fittest. The weaker ones are not there anymore. Just the giants have survived. Anybody else who was weaker or is gone. So that's why the giants mm-hmm. Sure. I, I like that reading. I never, I never heard it before, but it, it strikes me it's, it's another example of, of the old parable, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Mm-hmm. We had seen a couple of times recently in, in the subtext. Right, in Torah, right? That, and, that you, you, know, you have to be willing to... You can't just sit around and do nothing. Um, bad things will happen. <laughs> Right. Yes. And I don't know if this is uh, peculiar to English. It's just interesting. It struck me as we were talking about the settlers and sitting that we also use the word to settle when you sort of, you know, you throw up your hands and, okay, that's like I'll settle for that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Both passive. Um, and being that it's a very passive, it's a very passive word. Right. 
Um, so yes. And so if you if you settle, you know, if you settle for that argument, you're going to get what you deserve. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So the other part that the rabbis pick on, look at, we look like grasshoppers to ourselves. Yeah. All right. So we, they were so huge, we were like this, and so we must have looked to them. The rabbis go crazy here. Mm-hmm. They go crazy. What what are they crazy about here? Grasshoppers. No. <laughs> no. Grasshoppers. So grasshoppers is a very normal way in ancient Hebrew of expressing, you know, being small, right? So what did you say, Jody? It's the self-deprecation. That the rabbis say this is where they seal their fate, essentially, right? That we look like grasshoppers, we look like grasshoppers to ourselves, and so we must have, how do you know what you look like to them? Says God, right, in a midrash. In the midrash, Tanchuma, God says, how do you know you didn't look like angels to them? How dare you, essentially, assume or, or take as reality your self-image that you then project onto someone else that you say they're projecting onto you, right? We do this all the time, right? I don't know about y'all, but when I walk into a room of 15 and 16-year-olds, oh my God, right? I just have to fight, right, all my own, right, how they see me, right? You know, like, because, you know, the teenagers, how, oh, like, scary. Um <laughs> We have to fight all that stuff about how we think we're perceived, right? And that's what messes us up all the time is they're going to think I'm fill in the blank. Before you even say anything, before you've met them, they're going to think I'm, you know, whatever. Or you're in a room and you're like, see, they're all looking at me. They all think, and, and we then we fill in all of these blanks and act as if that's exactly the reality. That's what's true. And that's what happens. They go, they see them, they say, oh, they must see us as grasshoppers, and they act like grasshoppers. All right. 14. The whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites railed against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, the whole, the whole community shouted at them. Or if only we might die in the wilderness, why is the Lord taking us to that land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be carried off. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. And they said to one another, let us head back to Egypt. Oh, yeah. So just the noise in the room, right, around this text, right? Like, really? Yeah. Really? This is after 40 years. No, no. This is after... Three no, like oh, yeah, like two years. Two, three years. How long? Not even that. Like it's like two, two years. years. They just ce- they just celebrated the second Pesach. Oh, this so this is two years. So the whole community broke out in loud cries and the people wept. So did they believe Kalev, right, or did they believe the other scouts, right? Um, and what what is the first thing they do? They turn on. Moshe and Aaron. They turn on the Jews, turn on their leaders first. First thing they do. If only we had died in Egypt, right? Or if only we might die in this wilderness. Remember that phrase. Remember that phrase. If only we might die in this wilderness. Remember that. Why is God taking us to that land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be carried off. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. So they are essentially saying God is God is endangering our women and children. And they're throwing away the whole Red Sea and liberation and being saved and Let's go back to Egypt means forget this whole covenant business. Forget that whole Sinai deal. Mana. And what happened last week about the mana? You weren't here last week. What happened last week with the mana? Do we remember? They wanted pigeons. They wanted meat. We have nothing out here. Remember in Egypt we had leeks and onions and fish for free. (laughs) For free. All it cost them was 
their lives, their freedom, right? Um, all, all the, the only price they had to pay was slavery. So uh, it was all free, right? Here it is again. Yeah. Let's go back, let's go back to Egypt. All right. So what happens, Bert? Uh, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembled congregation of the Israelites. And uh, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Yephunneh, of those who had scattered the land, rent their clothes, and exhorted the whole Israelite community. The land that we traversed and scouted is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into that land, a land that flows with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only you must not rebel against the Lord. Have no fear, then, of the people of the country, for they are our prey. Their protection is departed from them, but the Lord from them, but the Lord is with us. Have no fear of them. As the whole community threatened to pelt them with stones, <laughs> the presence of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. All right. So Caleb and Yoshua come to the defense of Moshe and Aaron, presumably. They're speaking. It's asking the people to calm down. Um, we can do. God fights for us. God's on our side. It's going to be okay. And what happens? What do the people respond to that? They pick up stones and are ready to, to kill Caleb and Yoshua. And that's when God's kavod appears. Deus ex machina. Right? And exactly. And God says? Now the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me, and how long will they have no faith in me, despite all the signs that I have performed in their midst? I will strike them with pestilence and disown them, and I will make of you a nation far more numerous than they. Make of you. Yes, of Moses. But Moses said to the Lord, When the Egyptians from whose midst you brought up this people in your might hear the news, they will tell it to the inhabitants of that land. Now they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, that you, O Lord, are in plain sight when your cloud rests over them and when you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of cloud by night. If then you slay this people to a man, the nations who have heard your name will say, it must be because the Lord was powerless to bring the people into the land. He had promised them on the oath that he, that he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Therefore I pray, let my Lord's forbearance be great as you have declared, saying, the Lord slow to anger and abounding in kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, yet not remitting all punishment, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to your great kindness, as you have forgiven this people ever since Egypt. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should. All right. So God has had it. God has had it. I'm again. I'm gonna get get out of my way. I'm I'm done with them, and I'm going to disown them, and I'm going to make a nation out of you greater than they. And Moshe has to think fast. <laughs> and what does Moshe say? They deserve to be forgiven because ultimately they're really good people. No, he says it's your reputation, God. God He'll says say you weren't powerful you, this is going to get back to Egypt. <laughs> and they're going to say in Egypt, God couldn't bring them into that land and therefore killed them in the wilderness. Is that really how you want them talking about you in Egypt? I don't think so. Right? Um, so that's argument number one. But then Moshe uses God's words against God. And said, because we're Jews. Therefore, I pray, let God's forbearance be great as you have declared. You said you were, and here we have the quote. Why is it in quotes? Because Moshe's quoting God. You said you were Erech Apaim, Virab Chesed. You were, you were wide of nostril or, um, Long of nostril. Right? What happens when God gets angry? His nostrils. God's nostrils flare, right? So long of nostril means, right, you're patient. Right? Slow, slow to anger is what you usually see in the prayer book, right? Virav chesed and filled with abundant chesed. No say avon vafesha, lifting up. Didn't we have this word nasa? Naso, remember? Last week? Or the week before? We did all this Naso business, lifting up. Here it is. Lifting up off of you, sin. 
Right? All right. So these are the words, of course, that we use at high holidays. Adonai, Adonai, right? So, right. El Rachum Vechanun, Erechapayim, Birachesen, Vehemma. All right. So when we chant it this year, I want you to come back to this scene. Even at this kind of incident, <laughs> right? It's possible for God to be moved from Kisei Hadin, the throne of justice, to the throne of Rachamim, the throne of mercy. Moses was supposed to be slow of speech. Yeah, right? He's pretty eloquent here, isn't he? That's right, Reuben. Right? right? Mr. I am not a good speaker, right? Is being pretty quick on his feet talking to God and talking God out of destroying this people. Forgive, please, the sin of this people according to your chasdecha, the gadol, the hugeness of your chesed, right? As you have forgiven this people ever since they left Egypt. And what does God say? One of the high points of the liturgy on Yom Kippur. I have forgiven according to your speech, your words. So we remind God of this every high holidays. We were bad, but we weren't that bad. <laughs> right? So we kind of slide this in every high holidays to go, okay, I wasn't the best person I could have been. I, I gossiped. You know, I probably told a few white lies. But like I... I didn't go to stone the leaders, <laughs> right? Like so, um, so we we forget that when we're saying that kind of liturgy, we're we're evoking these images, right? And for the rabbis, tra- traditionally they mean it. They mean to throw this up to God, right? Every high holidays, because if you believe this really happened and it's really right, then you say we might have been bad, but look, we weren't that bad, and you forgave them, <laughs> right? So. And the only reason I say that is not to say that it's silly, is to say we're still a cheeky people. If you really believe this happened and you take it just like Moshe every high holidays and throw it up to God, right? That's a pretty chutzpah liturgy, right? Like we've been bad, but they were really not that bad. They were really bad, and you forgave them. Yes. I find Moses' reaction here very interesting. Okay. <clears throat> well, this is right after the people went to stone Moses. Yeah. And God says, I'll make you a nation. Mm-hmm. And Moses doesn't say, great, let's go do that. <laughs> well, right. These people just throw, they're throwing stones at me. Moses goes and defends okay. the people, which mm-hmm. I think is an amazing, amazing thing. The other... Maybe he just couldn't face having more children. He just couldn't deal. He just could not deal with more kids. The other thing I find, I mean, and I guess this this goes through the whole text, but clearly there's free will here. In terms of? Well, I mean, if, if God, if everything people did was just what God made them do, mm-hmm. Then number one, they would, they wouldn't be responsible for this, but God could have prevented it. You know why? Why go through all this? Clearly, God is saying, I've, as we say sometimes about kids, I've had it with these people. Mm-hmm. Whereas I guess theoretically, God could have prevented them from doing that in the first place. But then we wouldn't have most of right Torah. I'm saying right, but, it, but it, it, at least to me, it's clear that this is not a God who is a puppeteer who controls everything that happens on earth. God is more like a shepherd, which is the Im- imagery from the Psalms. The shepherd doesn't control what every every step that every sheep makes. The shepherd sets boundaries. Right. So my point was, that's why we have these stories. Right. Because right. none of our stories have God being the puppeteer. Right. The, all of our stories are about... Although some traditional the, people... About relationship. Right. But there are, there are people who would argue, more fundamentalist people... Of, and they try and fit a completely uh, um, omniscient and, omni- uh, and omnipotent God in here who's actually doing that, who's controlling No, that. no, no. Nope. No. Fundamentalists say God is omniscient mm-hmm. and omnipotent. Mm-hmm. Chooses out of God's own omnipotence <laughs> not to interfere. To let us have free to will. To let us have free will. And that omniscience does not negate free will. God knows we're going to mess it up, <laughs> but gives us the ability to do it 
Anyway, out of God's own omnipotence. Yeah, but if we, if, you look, if we go back to the beginning of this morning, um, again, the chiefs were chosen to go in there. So God had an inkling uh, that there was going to be trouble. Um, so it's not that he's, uh, you know, yes or no omniscient or whatever, but he clearly didn't expect, uh, he, didn't, he didn't send, you know, corporals to go in and to look and to scout and to bring back responses. He sent, you know, colonels of, and uh, generals of intelligence to bring back intelligence. So he knew, God knew what he was getting into by sending the, the scouts there. So, yes, yeah, so we would say that God gave leaders the opportunity to step up and lead. Correct. When they brought back what was the scene, God had to have known what well, he did. Omniscient or not, omnipotent or not, he had an idea that this wasn't going to go over. Why well, we do not know that? We do not know that. You would have to say God is omniscient. God has to be omniscient to know that. I, I actually believe this God evolves. I don't. I think the rabbis read an omniscient God. I don't think these texts are about an omniscient God. I believe God is shocked and horrified that the leaders did not step into their obligation and 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 believe and have faith and have trust and rally the people. And then the people believed, like they they panicked when they you know heard that rather than have any kind of God learns I believe partly because of the outcome right they're told not one of you's got you wanted to die in this wilderness you got it but but not to be disputatious mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> FS <laughs> zero <laughs> uh, the fact of the matter is he chose ahead of time mm-hmm. people with significant influence over the people. Mm-hmm. So God had to have some idea prior to the thing. This wasn't going to go over all. I don't. I don't agree. To be disputatious, I disagree. I think God, God risks it going bad. Yes, I believe God knows because God is sending leaders. God knows this can go really bad. I don't believe right. So God risks it, but doesn't. And I don't even believe has a hunch that it's going to go bad necessarily. I think God again trusts that this people's going to get its act together and finally is going to do what they're supposed to do. Or God would not have sent leaders. I mean, I don't think God wants this to go bad. I think God says, "All right, we're going to take leaders. Maybe the riffraff." Mm-hmm. Can't handle stuff. Now we're going to send the chieftains, the strong ones, the good ones, the ones who see. All, maybe we'll send the more sophisticated thinkers this time. Maybe that will go better, right? And this people once again fails their responsibility, fails God, fails. And if I read it compassionately, I, I year to year I change. But if I read it with compassion, God gets it that these people can't do it. If even the chieftains can't do it, God learns at the end of this episode, This that's why the punishment is that every one of these people will die except Caleb and Joshua. Mm-hmm. None of them will enter the promised land except Caleb and Joshua because none of them could handle it. They're, they are not able. After everything God's been through with them, God gets it at this point. They are not going to change. This generation. Including Moses and Aaron. Including Moses and Aaron. They are not the leaders for this campaign, for this endeavor. And that it is time to start with a new generation, a new people that is going to be able to, I don't know who over here said it, to build right the just and equitable society that, that God dreams for them to have in Israel. Is this a story of defeat or redemption? Uh, definitely not redemption. Is this yeah. the of the Jewish people as we knew it at that time? Caleb and Joshua are starting to feel we'll build a new Jewish people. Um, so, yes, and no. So, yes, yes, it is the beginning of the Jewish people that will conquer the land and will do all that. That entails the former generation 
dying. And now, so if we want to read this metaphorically at a, at a really high level, we can say that's always what has to happen, right? This is inevitable. That this is not, this is not, shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? That for a new generation, for, for things to change, for things to be different than they've been, you have to have, you have to have Moshe and Aaron get out of the way. They were important and critical for their generation, but the next generation is going to need a different kind of leadership. So this is from um, from Rabbi Mark Margolius. Rabbi Mark Margolius says, of course, in the Jewish tradition, it's not on your paper. I'm reading something else. In Jewish tradition, the land signifies more than a geographic location. I'm speaking to David's point. It also symbolically represents an ideal state characterized by wholeness and justice. In the book Exodus and Revolution, the political scientist Michael Walzer describes this concept of the promised land as a better place, a world more attractive, which may be reached only by joining hands and marching through the wilderness. The book of Numbers describes this journey to the land, this is to your point, as perhaps inevitably incremental and intergenerational. Right? If we're seeing the land not as the land, they're going to conquer it, boom, it's done, but rather as achieving a better place, a world more attractive, it can't be done by one generation. It's incremental and intergenerational. It's going to... What going to say about prior generations? Are they <clears throat> cowards? Are they weak? Are they and not worthy of God's ultimate grace? No, God has given them grace. God has forgiven them over and over and over. They're done. I mean, it's now they're God. done. Right. Now they're done. But does that mean they were weak and Jews were weak and beaten? I think it means they were, they because of their experience were not able to overcome the damage of slavery in order to, to, to do what it takes, to trust in something, you know, when I wrote that article that I published in the Jewish Journal recently, Paula, Paula said to me, the first thing she said to me was, you must experience the world as a really safe place. That's an odd comment, if you think about it as like just reacting to the article. But what, what was she saying? She was talking about the article. She was saying, for you to put that out into the world and to make yourself that vulnerable, you must understand the universe to be a safe and loving place. That's what they cannot do. So they can't take those risks of vulnerability. They can't, they can't do the things that it's going to take to, to build that land because they can't, they don't see the world as a safe, loving, hopeful place. They see it as a place of oppression and, and horror so and today need to look and say Joshua and Caleb are really the people that caused the new Jewish uh, people yes. to thrive. And we need to not look Moses, not Aaron. That's right. They, Moshe and Aaron did it for their generation. They did what they could to get those people out of there, right? To get them to believe enough to even step out of Egypt. That was a big enough task, right? They were appropriate for their that situation, but what we learn is that leaders are not appropriate for every situation and or for every generation, and it's up to us to look to the Kalev and Yeshua of our time, and the challenge for us is that we're attached to Moses and Aaron. We, we in this room, are, most of us, are attached to Moses and Aaron, and it's very scary to us to trust those millennials, Joshua and Caleb, right? There is an impressive lesson uh, that I don't know how comfortable I am with, but uh, I mean, we need to think about this a little bit. I I think you're right. I think that if there is not any Caleb and Joshua around, obvious uh, to an individual, that's where you get in. That, that's where things are not such a safe place. Right. Where all there are are, are you know people who are ten feet tall are going to take you, you take the ball, I'll take you. <laughs> that, that, that individual or the tweets. Right. Uh, right. So, so why is Caleb and Joshua on everybody's lips? I, I doubt one percent of the Jews in our world 
put no Caleb and Joshua. Joshua, I think people have the imagination of Joshua being the Joshua fit the bad love, Jericho, Jericho. There's no primacy in our in our thought process. Right, right, right. It's it. We, you're true because we. I think we stay with. Moshe and Aaron. I don't think it's just the fact that people don't know the Joshua Caleb story. I think, well, first of all, it's, it's one story out of five books. Right. But I think there's something there that we are attached to Moshe and Aaron, and the Joshua Caleb stuff scares us a little. Mary? There, there are two things I kind of wonder. In the nonprofit community, there's a thing known as founder syndrome. Which means that a founder has the vision and the energy to start an organization to move, but they may not have what's needed for the next step in the growth of the organization. Yeah. That's when somebody you know <laughs> comes in. Um, there's also the term uh, a man for all seasons, and we know it's not true because you can't be everything for every need at every time and I, this is an example of those two things but I, but I think that quote can be translated there's a person for every season meaning each season requires its own leader exactly. not it's one for all seasons right there's one for each time right um, okay Linda and then we're going to look at our paper God really then is trusting Caleb and Joshua to send this group of people still a slave mentality back to the desert to raise a new generation. Aharon and Moshe are going to do that. Yeah, right. Aharon and Moshe remain the leaders for the next 40 years. Right, for the the people that are there. But they're building a new generation to trust and appeal to Joshua. Yes, absolutely. Before we end, could you try to mesh this with the, the historical truth that we have of this ragtag group coming into an already existing Canaanite group who become... It didn't happen. Right, so there's no point in my... No. No. So it... It didn't happen. Wait. Possibly, like, uh, but, but it's a wonderful story. It is wonderful. So, like we okay. keep saying, probably a group who had an experience of oppression pushed into Israel and started taking positions of leadership. That story resonated with resident Canaanite serfs who were oppressed by the nobility. Right? Think about um, tenant farmers. Right, they, the giant people who owned the land and controlled everything, and they were scrounging to make a living and feed their families on these little plots of land. Right, they, they resonated with this story of these people who were becoming influential. That they escaped something like that to worship this invisible God. That story resonates with the Canaanites. They and they and these others. Right, they. There's a lot of influences that start to coalesce, and you convert the Canaanites to Yahwism. As this group rises in power that has this invisible God, Yahweh, you, you worship the dominant God. That's no problem. Whenever a God conquers, you take on worshiping that God. That was not a problem in the ancient world. Um, and so they start worshiping Yerhei So most of the Israelite population who wrote these stories are Canaanites. They're converted Canaanites, right? So this it's that it's a long time that that it takes, but the whole land becomes a people that that has this as its foundational story. A lot of people adopted this story still, as theirs. Were they still called Hebrews? So they were. So they were Ivrim. Ivrim is the original group, right? Ivrim that have this this thing of crossing over, Avor. So there's a group of Ivrim who have this experience. Then a lot of the Canaanites take on that identity as it becomes Yisrael. The reason that I ask is that it's, I think it's ancient Sumerian that the term Hebrew is Habiru. They pass through. Um, uh, so the, the, that's the way to... They were seen from the outside. So either they pass through or hapiru are about those who avor, those who cross over. So to cross over that body of water, you know, to cross over some kind of boundary. Um, they crossed over from there into Israel. Like we're, we're not sure, but I mean, there's, I'm giving you a very, very brief sketch. It's a very long history. Just Torah is a thousand years. 
Just Torah is a thousand years. So forget like the the long. There's twelve tribes. They're loosely confederated, right? Then they become. So it's. I'm not saying it's not interesting. I, I find it actually fascinating. It's one of the points of biblical history that I'm most interested in. Is how this gets started, but it's hard to sketch it, right? Um, so briefly. All right, just look quickly at your paper. So I'm, it's just giving you um, a few examples of how we bring this into the now, right? The first lesson uh, of this story is the selection. Who do you send? So drop down to the last paragraph on the front of that page. We must be careful who we choose as a mentor. 168, bottom paragraph. We must be careful who we choose to be a mentor. At least we should be aware of how we have been affected by our choice. Our advisors' perceptions, whether coming from a place of courage or fear, have influenced our decisions and still shape our futures. Right. So we need to identify whose voices are in our heads when we're going to take a risk or, or we're faced with a risk. Whose voice is on the tape that plays in our head? The world is a terribly dangerous place. You better not do that. You better not publish that. You better not put that out there. But whose voice is that? It's very important to identify that. right? Every therapist will tell you this. Because you have to ask, is it true? Is that really what I believe? Or is that a trope that I learned really early right? that shapes and influences how I think? And then I can challenge it. Um, and then I get to pick whose voice do I put on that tape now? Who do I listen to in the world now, right? So I, I always have an automatic tape that clicks on in my head from my childhood. Um, but I have had enough teachers that now I have, enough, I say, aha, I recognize that voice. Stop, right? You hit stop, and then I hit play on the voices that I trust and the teachers and the mentors that I trust and value. And like that's the work that the, that the, that the people didn't do the people. I mean, we're the people, right? You know, that, that they listened right away uh, to that. So you'll work your way through uh, the rest of this. Um, had these spies go to page 169, bottom paragraph. It's easy to imagine a modern day parallel. Had these spies been sent to scout New York City, they would have returned talking not of the cultural attractions, but of the muggings. Had they been sent to Los Angeles, they would have returned talking of riots and earthquakes. Had they ended up anywhere on the globe, they would have brought back only bad news. Right. So the only thing, the other thing is, what are we looking for when we're sent out as scouts? When we're asked for a report about what's going on, how? Thi- how I love this. How are things at KI? All right. I have to stop. Always take a deep breath, right? And what is it I want to report, right? There's lots that's true about what's happening at KI, right? But what am I? What are they asking me? They're, you know, like I'm. I need to look for what's exciting, what's inspiring, what's good, what's right, right? Because we can look for. I could start complaining about my week. It's what are we looking for? What are we paying attention to? What are we? Lifting up. What's our what's our attitude going in? What glasses? Are we doing? What glasses? What lenses are we wearing? Is there a point here about that ten of the twelve are negative? Is, is there something to be said for that? Yeah, I think it takes. People just are, are negative. It takes courage. It takes real courage to see it differently, right? And not well, not five and four. And not go to fear, because right. because eight out of t- ten out of twelve of us go right to fear. It's the vision of the future that propels the two out of the world. And not everybody is a visionary. These visionaries you choose to follow. Well, and and a certain amount of moral courage, right? Go, Go down on page 170, flip your paper over. Go to the paragraph that begins, Can the Grip of Fear... Can the grip of fear be so strong that it causes us to abandon all faith and reason? I think the history of humanity stands as proof that this is so. Right? So they might have gone with trust, but they allow fear and their own fear and anxiety to overcome their faith and their reason. And we, we, our fear is incredibly powerful. Right? And we go there. We allow it to swamp everything else. Our hope, our courage, our vision, our whatever, even the evidence we have that seas can part. We ignore all the evidence and focus on, right, the fear. Um, and it just swamps everything. So the last one um, is that uh, 
Herman Woke in his classic work, This Is My God, talks about slave mentality and that we, te- we tend to think of slaves as oppressed and suffering and whatever. And he says it's worse than that. They're lazy. You take away someone's right to control their destiny in any way and they sit back and do as little... I mean, you know, because you've taken away motivation you know, for anything. And so that not only... It's not just their internalized oppression, suffering, whatever, brokenness. It's they're lazy. They don't, they don't want to do the work because they've become accustomed right, to, to not having anything to... Um, to yeah, right. They lack the confidence that they could do it, that they could make decisions, that they could make choices because the, the, that had all been taken from them. Um, so how many of us burdened by traumatic childhood experiences choose to bemoan our fate, blaming our parents and God, rather than taking advantage of the window of opportunity to cross over to the new approach to life offered by the promised land? How many people refuse to take a risk and embrace life, preferring, it seems, to lead lives of quiet desperation? Right. And so it's up to us to make the choice to say, okay, yes, I can acknowledge that things have been really hard, that there really are terrible things that happen in the world. I've suffered them myself, and I get that. But I can either stay with that slavery experience, or you know, I can say there's a new way to see things. I'm being asked, I'm being called into a new opportunity to see myself differently with the call to step into the promised land. And will we, will we step over? Will we... Will we have the courage and the trust to do that? This Shabbat, may we surround ourselves with those things that inspire us, that yes, indeed, we can and should. So may it be. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.